Chapter 107 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we get permission to geek out over the things we're obsessed with from the ultimate maker, Adam Savage. Then we find out how 9-11 and a Parisian bookstore influenced the new book from cookbook editor turned best-selling thriller writer Chris Pavoni. Is there something you've always wanted to create but are either too afraid to try or maybe you're worried you'll get made fun of? Well, Adam Savage, the Mythbusters guy and maker of all things, has a message for you. He came by our studios and spoke with our Wayne Cabot about his new book, Every Tool's a Hammer. After 14 seasons on Mythbusters and now Mythbusters Jr., everybody's favorite creator, maker, breaker, guy, (laughs) Adam Savage, is here right now. Adam, it's so cool to see you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. You you wrote a book that's in defense of passion and obsession. Obsession is not necessarily a bad thing. There's good obsession and there's unhealthy obsession. I love the fact that you're bringing this up because a lot of us feel really weird and geeky. You know, talking about and, and that's the thing is that is that I realized that all those things that I was attracted to when I was 12, 13 years old, the movies and the storylines and the books that I was reading, uh, they they woke really important things up in me. But I was afraid to share those with my peers because when you're passionate about something, it makes you vulnerable. And I wanted to write a book that was a permission slip to people to sh- follow and share those passions that they have. Well, sure, you're in middle school. I mean, you got gym lockers and oh. wedgies and and everything else. And we know that that is not, that is the time when you're told you need to conform. Yes, you want to fit in. So, what do you do when you have that? that creative bent and and you need that permission to go ahead and, and pursue that when everything around you, because your peers have 100% of credibility, your parents have none. You had very <laughs> supportive parents. Yeah. And I guess, I guess in your case, that was enough for you to continue well, along. it's it, my parents were incredibly supportive and I was very lucky in that regard. Uh, it also, there are ways in which uh, the web uh, and social media are not just toxic cesspools because they can allow one to find their peer group. No matter what your strange passion is, uh, there is a group online that is discussing it. Right. And if you can find those folks, they really can help encourage you to follow the thing that you're doing and help you do your research. Yeah, that's true. That's some, that, that is the upside to what can be a toxic cesspool. <laughs> that's a very good point. It's, uh, it is a haven for geeks everywhere. And Geek is not a bad word. It means no, you're passionate. Exactly. I, it, to me, these these communities uh, that dive into the minutia of something that's important to them, whenever you peel the layers of an onion of something and really start to go all the way, as I say in the book, through the wormhole, through the bottom of the rabbit hole, um, you're going to find yourself. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for those things that resonate with the strings inside of us that that allow us to participate in our culture. Because to me, ultimately, when you follow those passions, they inspire you. And they, for me, they inspire me to make something. And I, for me, they inspire me to make physical things. But I also don't relegate making simply to the the, the realm of physical objects. M- making is storytelling. It's building films. It's making clothing. It's making tables. It's everything. Every time you reach out to make something from nothing. Are you saying that we're building art right now? You... You know, in the stories that you build here, you are totally working on narrative arcs. You are trying to get a hook, a hold, and a payoff. You're taking the audience somewhere. Absolutely. 
And I like the part that you said about being vulnerable, because you and I are both kind of putting ourselves out here right now. Either of us could say something really stupid. Luckily, I can edit. You can't. You leave. As I like to say, I'm one hot mic away from the end of my career. Oh, but, but, and that's exhilarating, too, isn't it? It is. Yes. There's nothing more exhilarating than, than walking that tightrope, or in your case, diving into a dumpster <laughs> and, and wondering what's going to happen. By the way, how did that turn out for you? when you The, the diving into the dumpster, uh, really, really fun to do, but the adrenaline, when you're standing at the edge of a building looking 20 feet below you at a dumpster floor, of foam your whole body is saying to you stop this get off of this ledge like all the alarms are going off and then you jump and you're fine and you have this adrenaline rush and doing that all day long for mythbusters i was physically ill by the end of the day adrenaline and i don't get along i love how you dressed up in costume for that you had a big long flowing black coat which by the way i'll admit to you I have one too. <laughs> I do. You could have borrowed mine if you needed one. And in in my case, I like to go camping and pretend that it's the ninth, the eighteen sixties. Oh, nice! And I got the cowboy hat yeah, and the whole yeah. thing. And I'd never admitted that before. You are into is it pronounced cosplay? Cosplay, yeah. Okay. And you that was kind of your 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 coming out. That was a breakout moment on Mythbusters. Yeah, I was, so from a producing standpoint, we had this episode in which we had to find out how easy it was to jump into dumpsters like Keanu Reeves does in almost any movie. Uh, and I knew that there would be two halves to the first part of this episode. There'd be a training half where stuntman Randy Lamb would teach Jamie and I how to jump off buildings. And then there would be the testing phase. And again, from a producing standpoint, I wanted a separation between these. And I thought, okay, costume. Let's get sweatsuits to say stunt trainee for the first half and for the second half. Oh, I want something really dramatic. And I realized, oh, Keanu Reeves, I'll dress as Neo from The Matrix. So without telling my crew, I assembled this really accurate Neo costume. And then on the day of that, those tests, uh, after I'd done some pieces to camera, I went over to my Land Cruiser and I changed into Neo and I came around from behind and was confronted by my crew. Now, these are my family. They've all worked with me for more than a decade. And they saw me in the Neo costume and they all started suppressing church giggles. <laughs> And <clears throat> so for a second, you must have been like, oh, no, it's high school all over again. Oh, yeah. No, for a second, I felt like I was 12 years old. I was totally exposed. I'm pinned and wriggling to the wall. And I realize what they see, that they see right through me. They see how into this I am. And they find it sweet. They're my family. They love me. Right. So I, I feel that sense. But I also feel that sense of embarrassment because it's a weird hobby. I'm not making the world a better place directly with, with that hobby. And yet following that interest for me is the engine of everything that I've achieved. And so I pay it the honor it deserves. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some quotes, and I want you to tell me who said these things. Okay. Uh, okay. Obsessions are where ideas come from. You said that. I did. Obsessions are more than hobbies. They are passions. They have purpose. And I like this especially. We as a society have a jaundiced view of obsession. We conflate obsession with conditions like OCD. And that is true. Well, so again, I, there are people who genuinely suffer, and OCD is a condition in DSM. It is a real thing that people struggle with, and I don't mean to make light of it in any way. You didn't in the book. What's that? You, you didn't make light of it. Maybe no. my, my taking that that isolated quote might have made it seem that way. But, but no, I just I like that. if anybody out there suffers from this, I, I want to say I really understand that suffering. I uh, what I'm talking about is uh, a, a separate, I think, creative desire that drives us to 
to keep digging, to keep on peeling, as I said, layers of the onion until you've gone, uh, until you've explored something to its most minute degree. But when you've gone four days without showering or eating, that might be a problem. <laughs> I, the, the thing for me, I, I came to this understanding is I kept on thinking of physics and the emotions and, and mental process of making. And I realized that I think obsession is the gravity of making. That anything that happens that is truly excellent, whether it's a play or a book or a dance or a performance, it occur, it's excellent because somebody was obsessed because somebody took the time to make it as excellent as they possibly could. And you talk about the vulnerability that's part and parcel of that. And you said that even as you wrote this book, <laughs> even as you wrote this book, you felt a frightening vulnerability. I, I'm revealing a lot about myself in this book. I'm revealing things that I have revealed before. I'm revealing things that I haven't. Um, as, I'm, as, I'm, as I was fleshing out these stories and thinking of ways to make them resonant, uh, I kept on redounding to personal stories to explain the wrong turns I took to understand this or that thing uh, and the friendships that sometimes I lost because I screwed things up so badly. Um, these are the ways that we learn, and right. I wanted to be really honest about it because to me, sharing the experience that nobody escapes from those self-doubts, nobody escapes from the imposter complex, nobody escapes from that vulnerability no matter how successful you get. The imposter complex. We all know that. <laughs> Waiting for the tap on the shoulder saying, what are you doing here? Oh, you're not supposed to so be here. I know. I can see right through you. I know that you're not worthy. Yeah, you never quite get over it. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing that you never totally get over that. No, nor should you. The yeah. moment you think you're over the imposter complex, life is about to smack you so hard in the face. Yeah. I, I was having lunch with a friend who's my age just a few years ago, and I mentioned imposter complex offhand. And he stopped me, and he was like, what is, what, is, what is that? And I explained it, and he blanched. He looked sheet white. And if there was a camera move on this scene, it would have been a dolly and zoom out like Kubrick, right? The rear, the background extending into infinity. <laughs> and he said, I thought it was only me. And I thought, oh, my God, if you don't know about this, then I need to help normalize the fact that all of us feel this all the time. It's a universal thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's true. There are so many things that we think only apply to us. And then you realize, wait a minute, this is actually a normal and maybe even healthy condition. You talk about you talk about getting smacked in the face. You literally got hit in the head. I love what you're talking about. What a mess your life used to be when you're living in Brooklyn and your cat. <laughs> wait, I have the cat's name in here somewhere. Regis. Regis. Of course, how could I forget that? Of course. Why, why'd you name your cat Regis? Because I love Regis oh, Philbin. Who doesn't love Regis Philbin? <laughs> and Regis is a great name. And I, <laughs> I think that I was, I called my cat Regis because at that point, I mean, Regis Philbin has been ubiquitous in New York forever. But at that point that I got that cat, I realized that Regis Philbin had been a star since the 60s. Right. Like Regis Philbin had been a fixture far longer than I had possibly imagined. And I was like, this is an important name. And Regis knocked a... Uh, potted plant on yeah. your head yes. while you were sleeping. Uh, you know, that's, it's like all the ways in which we were horribly filthy uh, in our early 20s. I, I was all of those things. Yeah. And I, I did not clean. I don't think I changed those sheets. <laughs> I think I brushed all the dirt off the sheets. And then I slept in that bed for another week or two. That, it was disgusting. It got a little muddy and yeah. sweaty and grimy after I, a while. But you got your act together. And, and I... You actually inspired me to go out and clean my workbench after reading this. Be the because organization, people say, well, it's a sign of a sick mind, right? But quite the contrary. 
it allows you, it's a gift from your present self to your future self, you said, and I love that. This is, this is a, a relationship I've come to understand deeply for me, and the, the analogy works really well, that when I am sweeping up my shop at the end of the day, and I never want to, I never, ever, there's never an end of the day where I'm like, boy, I want to put away all these tools and sweep up this shop. But each time I do it, I know that I'm sending a message to tomorrow morning's me that this has a value and I want you to come into a clean shop and a clean headspace in order to figure out what to do. Uh, and that's, that's a really lovely grace that we can give ourselves. Now, yeah, yeah, because if you have an idea and you want to jump in and you go to a cluttered space, you're like, oh, I got to deal with all this now before I can get to it. It's the energy and momentum out of your whole process. And, and there's a lot of people that are sitting there waiting for all the things to be in the right place. This is actually another aspect of this. There's a lot of people who are like, I don't want to get started until I have the right workbench, the right pencil, the right blank sheet of paper, the right canvas. And one of the other things I exhort people to do here is to just start grab corrugated cardboard and a hot glue gun and start making the thing. Grab a pencil and start sketching. There is no perfect time. There's no perfect set of circumstances. By the way, why is your book hard and mine soft? <laughs> you got one of the very <laughs> earliest copies, which means it's riddled with typos. Which means it's a collector's item. I'm it gonna is. hang on Absolutely. to this. I'll sign it for you before Although I, I have, I have marked it up considerably. What else did I see in here? Oh, uh, lists, lists. I love lists. See I, see, I always thought that lists, again, Something's wrong with you if you're if you're a crazy list maker, and then I realized, wait a minute, I guess I guess something's wrong with me because, and I I brought in a prop. <laughs> well, <laughs> when you were a kid, you said you what was new at the time was this thing called cable TV. Oh yeah, we got more than four channels. Well, here's where Adam Savage and myself have a have a similarity. I want to show you what, oh, I, what, I, what I drew up. This is pre-cable. I'm a little bit older than you, a couple years older than you. That's right before cable TV. There's all the broadcast over-the-air channels. Oh, my God. You were vat-grown to do what you do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I have a separate sheet of radio stations. That's amazing. This this makes me so happy. This This type of... I mean, the fact that you also color-coded them. Yes. Um, and it Blue looks is like New you... York. Red is Philadelphia. Amazing. You know the the four color uh, the four color map theorem. No, uh, that there is no uh, that four colors is the minimum number of colors you need for coloring in any map such that no two colors touch each other. Oh, okay. And it took the longest time for this to be proven mathematically. I'm obsessed four with this. Four is all you need? How many did I Four is all you need. I think you have five or six here. See, you have more intuitive. than you need. Yeah, I overdid it then. That's, the, I'm over the top, typically. The level of specificity is so delightful. I'm very proud of that. Thank um, you. I had to Kevin show Kelly, who started Wired Magazine, is a friend of mine. And like he was stapling together magazines at the age of seven or eight. Like He's always wanted to make magazines. Isn't that something? Yeah. That's his way of organizing and creating. Exactly. Should oh be. What a beautiful document. But it leads me to what happened to you next after you made your list of all of the new cable channels that were just popping up, that well, new thing called so cable TV. It was the early, HBO started its incredible uh, partnership with George Carlin. Right. And I was there at the beginning. And uh, aside from the novelty of seeing somebody curse on the small television, I was raised on a steady diet of inappropriate European films that my parents took me to. But seeing this on regular television was astounding. And George Carlin had this famous routine, the seven dirty words you can't say on television. And that's and a list. 
it, what's it? That's, that's a, a list. list. Just seven. But then he finished. Uh, I think that he did that twice on HBO. And the second time he finished with this long list of every curse he could think of. And we didn't have DVR, so every time it played, I was transcribing as many as I could until I had all of them. And then I alphabetized them, indexed <laughs> them on separate index cards, and put them in alphabetical order in a card file. I believe I still have somewhere in storage. Oh, you got to bust those out. <laughs> oh, we got to see those. I'm not sure if I added definitions, but it was, it was such a. I'm some one of my proclivities is I love to collect collections. I love agglomerations of things, and the idea that I was possessing all the curse words at at 11 years old that was intoxicating. There might be new ones now. Oh, I'm sure. You may have to, make, <laughs> you may have to so revise many, that list. I there were so many I didn't know, and I remember my little brain thinking, like, "I wonder what that means." But did you share that with your? Peers, not your parents. No, no, oh, I don't. No. I don't think I shared it with anybody. I don't remember discussing it with anyone. I just remember carefully doing this craft project that was all curses, and that also kind of made me. There was the idea that this like uh, harmless metal box housed all of this obscenity. <laughs> also made me very happy. A lunchbox full of lascivious <laughs> words. I love it. The tools of creation you fear are being kept out of the hands of our most dynamic and creative minds, and the world needs more makers. And that's one of the things you hope to accomplish here. So how do we, why is it that people who are, who are having universe-given, God-given talents don't realize that? What happens? Well, we have no problem culturally understanding and agreeing that kids need what we call STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, I uh, will I am I believe coined putting the A in STEM for arts and calling it STEAM because they're a critical part. Uh, but the arts is often when budget cuts happen, the arts are what suffers in high schools and colleges around the country. Uh, we lose our drama departments, we lose our shop classes, we use our lose our auto auto shop classes, and all these are to me really, really important parts of being a person, being able, I learned sewing and home economics, me and it too. was such a fundamentally important skill sure. at Sleepy Hollow High School for me. Uh, these are formative things to be able to reach out and grab something. And I've heard about um, entry-level architectural colleges in the U.S. are having trouble with new students because they literally don't know how to glue two things together. Please tell me you're making that up. No. That is if, frightening. If, to me... <sighs> Way back in the, let's see, like in the 16th century, you either had a wooden spoon you carved yourself or you had a silver spoon that someone made for you. Right. You were either poor or rich. There uh -huh. wasn't really a middle ground. Then the Industrial Revolution happens. They stamp forks and knives out of metal and everyone can have one. Uh, and we all have the same ones now. But we're moving towards a world that I envision where rapid prototyping becomes manu rapid manufacturing. And I could buy my next iPhone case from kid down the street made exactly to my specs, made during a relationship with someone I know. With their 3D that, printer that, or that whatever. That that level of bespoke, uh, 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 perfect adjustment is accessible to everybody. Yeah. But it requires us raising a, a, a generation of digital natives who are comfortable with this technology. And you know, as William Gibson says, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And to me, we need to make sure that there are maker spaces for all kids to be able to explore the power of making something from nothing. That is a power, and it's a superpower. It is, particularly if, and I don't know how you, how you feel about this, but if the proverbial shit hits the fan and everything goes down, uh, who's going to survive? The makers. I, I mean, you know, 
there's and the arts. Honestly, one of the things I've always I got my start in theater, and one of the things I've always loved about theater is. I consider it the art form that will survive an apocalypse completely intact. That's right. The morning after an apocalypse, if there's 20 people left in New York City, they're going to gather around a campfire and they're going to tell stories and they're going to act them out. That's, That's the exactly right. And by the way, that leads me to, I want to express I, to you, and it may sound random, but my, my sorrow and condolences and sadness about the passing of Peter May here. Oh. I, I assume that... That you being a big Star Wars fan, that must have, that must have hit you kind of hard. It really hit me hard. Um, a, a more generous, kind person and family, the Mayhews, are legendarily sweet. Uh, they actually wrote to me afterwards and talked about the, the, the brief friendship that I enjoyed with Peter. Uh, I was lucky enough to call him a, a friend, friend acquaintance. Um, and he was amazing. Uh, Chewbacca is my favorite character, is my favorite non-human character in film. Is that, that right? Is totally. And that is informed by Peter's amazing, incredible, nuanced uh, performance as that character. A friend of mine does a podcast, and he was playing different Chewbacca sounds. And he and his co-host were guessing which scene of which movie <laughs> and they were nailing them wow and I, i'm not a star wars guy enough to be able to replicate it but it was like yeah that's when he was upset about being handcuffed and that's where and I'm, he's just making that 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 chewbacca noise but people are so into it and it really did have a, a, an amazing impact on on viewers well he he's an incredible character because he has so much power and also so much tenderness uh, you can feel that grapple from in him between the, the the technological animal and the emotional animal that that he ex embodies a, a high level of both and people just loved him too mm -hmm. can you do the voice can you do it? <laughs> wow! I, I Chewbacca is my. I That's have, really good. Um, now, I've, I've which, made which three one, Chewbacca. Which movie costumes. was that? Which scene was that? <laughs> <laughs> You've made three Chewbacca costumes. I have. Um, the the and wearing a Chewbacca costume is so much fun because people lose their minds when they see a Chewbacca in person. They just come up and hug you so tight. It's. It, they find it so emotional to see him there. Did you wear stilts or something? Uh, I wear uh, I wear four inch lifts on my sh shoes. I have these huge tall boots, and with the head going about four or five inches above my head, I'm almost seven feet tall, which is not canon. Chewbacca's taller than that, right? But it's tall enough. I got to tell you something. I really think that anybody who wants to feel good about themselves and their geekiness, got to check this out. I really enjoyed it. You know, and I said at the beginning I wanted to be a, a, a permission slip and. When I read books by great makers, by artists, sorry, I don't mean to say that I'm a great maker or an artist, but when I read books by people who, who talk about making with enthusiasm, it makes my hands itch. It makes me want to get working. And that's what I hope people get out of this. The deepest truths about your experience are universal truths. So said you. Well, I, I'm and quoting I Emerson. Oh, oh, well, <laughs> who? Emerson says, to know that what is true in your secret heart is true for all, that is genius. Wow, quoting Emerson. This is what you get here. Adam Savage, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. Good luck with the book. Good luck with Discovery Junior. What's on that? Uh, well, so uh, Mythbusters Junior. Myth, I'm sorry, Mythbusters. I, Mythbusters Junior. Yes, Can we Mythbusters edit that Junior. Out? No, we can't. Aired earlier this year, um, but on June 12th, I have a new show coming up on the Science Channel called Savage Builds. Ah. Eight episodes of absurd engineering with different uh, collaborators and genius engineers and scientists every week. Um, in the first episode, we made a set of 3D printed Iron Man armor out of titanium. 
I love it. You see, you're not afraid to let all your inner geek freak flag fly. Not God at bless all. you. A pleasure. A pleasure. By the way, that Iron Man suit is bulletproof and can fly. Seriously, how cool is that? We've posted a video of Wayne's interview with Adam on our YouTube page. Find it under the Author Talks heading at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. The Paris Diversion isn't your run-of-the-mill thriller about terrorism. And that's exactly the point, says its author Chris Pavoni. He came by our studios to talk about his smart thriller and tell us how his experiences on 9-11 inspired the novel's plot. I lived downtown, way downtown in New York in 2001, and I sat in the apartment window watching all sorts of horrible things happen from just a few hundred feet away. And then we were evacuated from our home for a month when the ground zero became surrounded by the frozen zone. And I went back to work and New York City was this really scary place where there were bomb threats in our office building all the time and anthrax envelopes popping up. And every time a truck backfired, people thought, this is it. This is the next terrorist attack. And that moment of the autumn of 2001, feeling like the terrorism would never end, is really seared in my memory as an extremely powerful moment in the way we now live in the world, that there, there are these cities that go through this experience and these vast populations who are now accustomed to this. But I got less accustomed to it over time, and the memory faded until 2016 when I got off a plane in Paris just days after the Bastille Day truck attack in Nice, and this was the year after Charlie Hebdo and the November attacks, and Paris in 2016 seemed exactly like New York in 2001. And I realized I wanted to write a terrorist novel that was really sort of my 9-11 novel, but I never wanted to write about 9-11. I don't, a lot of people had done it. Uh, a lot of tropes had been invented over the ensuing 15 years. And instead of writing a book that was based on those tropes, I wanted to write a book that took advantage of readers' preconceptions about who a terrorist is and why they're doing what they are, and to turn those preconceptions on their head. And so the people who end up being the bad guys look a lot more like me than you expect when you open the book. Right. And I think, you know, this whole idea of terrorism being used as a diversion, mm. it's its really a scary thought <laughs> that you kind of put out there in the world right now. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, this is not an instruction manual for manipulating securities markets or anything like that. I'm, I, I don't think that people could actually do the things that are done in this book. I am a novelist of thrillers, and I'm willing to depart from reality to a certain extent for plot purposes. Um, I did, however, try to hew, I think, really closely to reality while writing characters and while writing their interactions. And in, in a lot of ways, that is, to me, what the core of any book is, even a thriller, is really about characters and their interactions and what makes uh, a lot of thrillers, and especially spy thrillers, more tense and more exciting than others is that the betrayals are within intimate relationships between spouses or between lovers or between bosses and their underlings or the other way around. And I think that's a really powerful idea that the people you're closest to may not be who they're pretending to be and the stakes can get extremely high. So let's talk about your protagonist, Kate. Yeah. She seems kind of like a reluctant heroine. Mm. And this is also, we should mention, a sequel to your debut novel, The Expats. Yeah. Why was there so much time in between that book and this one? 
Ah, that's a good question. So The Expats is a book that I started writing when I was 41 years old, a year after I'd followed my wife's career to Luxembourg. And I gave up my own career here in New York City as a book editor, and I became somebody who was at home with little kids and cooking and cleaning and going to wine tasting classes to try to make new friends in this place where I didn't speak the language and I didn't know how to do anything. And I started writing a book about that, The Expats. And the life that I was writing about at first was pretty boring. And I realized that the book I was writing was pretty boring. And it was filled with a lot of complaints about how much I didn't like doing laundry and how frequently the kids announced their need to go to the bathroom. And I realized I need to back away from all that whining and invent something else. And I, I because I'd been longtime fan of spy fiction, I turned that reluctant stay-at-home parent into a recently retired spy who discovered that retirement is not really what she wanted to do at all, as, as I think many people do at some point in their lives. If you leave the workforce and you raise children, at some point you think to yourself, Jesus, what am I going to do next? I mean, how long is this going to go on? The children obviously grow up and they leave. And then where am I? I'm in my 40s. I'm 50 years old. And I haven't had a job in 10 or 15 years. And what do I do with the rest of my life? And Kate Moore decided pretty quickly after a year of this, as did I, uh, that this was not going to be the end of her career. And she launched back into it, but with more self-knowledge about what she did and didn't want out of career and out of her family and out of life in general. And yet still in this book, she's still kind of grappling with, did I make the right choice and trying to juggle motherhood? I mean, we follow her around. I love this whole subplot of trying to find a Lego for her son's, <laughs> for her son's birthday. Trying to find elusive Lego was a big part of my life for a few years there. And then Lego, like many things, just ends, you know. And one day you, you go to playgrounds every day and you try to prevent your kids from falling off tall, dangerous climbing apparatuses and breaking your arms, which, by the way, is what I exactly tried to do in Luxembourg and failed. A kid of mine, despite my eagle eye, fell off a tall, dangerous climbing apparatus and broke his arm. And when I asked him when his cast eventually came up off, what did you learn from this experience? I was expecting him to say something along the lines of, I need to be more careful. And his answer was, breaking your arm doesn't hurt that much, which is exactly what I didn't <laughs> want him to learn. But nevertheless, now I understand things from a kid's point of view a lot better. Um, and I think no matter what you're doing in life, if you don't at some point or another ask, is this the right thing for me to be doing, then you're very uh, out of the ordinary. And the, the truth is that so many of us, me, maybe you, so many people decide what it is they're going to do with their careers when you're basically a child, when you're 21 or 22 years old and you launch yourself into a career, you don't know anybody who does this for a living. You have no idea what it's like to do it when you're 30 or 50 or 70. And here it is, you're doing it. And I'm now 50 years old. And almost everybody who I've been friends with for the past 30 years does pretty much what they decided to do then, which leads to two different conclusions. One is that um, absolutely all young people are completely correct about what their careers should be, or that a lot of people never seriously make an attempt to do something else. And I haven't either. I've spent my entire adult life working in publishing. And although I'm a novelist now, I was a book editor for nearly two decades, they're really, in the overall scheme of things, very, very similar. And not as dangerous as espionage. No, not, not, <laughs> not dangerous at all. So let's talk about you know the book itself. It unfolds over 12 hours. There are tons of 
plot lines, thing, red herrings, things running in different directions. How did you keep track of all this while you were writing it? Well, tons is perhaps a mischaracterization <laughs> of the volume of plot lines. Many. I mean, there, there are a few <laughs> overlapping plot lines. Um, I keep track of it uh, in a couple of very specific ways. The, the first is that I, as an author, need to know everything that's going to go on in this book and all the relationships between the characters and how they're going to betray each other and why. I need to know that in order to write the book. And in order to know that, I actually need to write it out for myself. And so I write a document that explains to me everything that's going to go on over the course of the book. And then I dole out the pieces to readers, the reveals, only as needed to keep the plot moving. And so I I withdraw most of them from consideration until fairly late in the book and, and simply meet them out one at a time. Um, that's the main way I keep track of it. Also, I have... I have a really detailed outline that I'm constantly fiddling and revising. And there's no doubt about it, it's it's confusing to write these books because once I start revising or I change something, then it can be a whole house of cards that just falls down. I think, oh my God, this change I made on page 300 looks little, but it's really, I have to now fix every single chapter. Um, but it's exciting and it's fun. And I I love solving puzzles. I've been a daily crossword puzzle solver for really my whole life. And I look at my books as, for me, writing them is like solving a puzzle and reading them should be like solving a puzzle too, that it's a little bit hard to know everything that's going on and you're definitely confused at some moments, but I think that's what makes it so much more rewarding, at least for me as a reader, to come to the end and say, aha, and then aha again. And those things have to be earned. If you if you were never guessing, if you were never wrong, then there's not really any satisfaction at the end when you realize everything that's gone on. So that's what I'm trying to create is sort of maximum satisfaction when you get to the end of the book. And that involves, in a book like this, I think that involves having people be a little bit lost. Hopefully, though, uh, that person is never me, the author. I need to not be lost. Tell me about the week in Paris that really brought this whole idea together for you. Yeah, that's when I got off the plane and took the train into downtown, and all of a sudden there were clusters of three and four soldiers and policemen wearing flak jackets and carrying assault rifles, and not just at the big landmarks where you'd expect them, but just walking down your basic residential street as if you walked outside of the studio here. And there were there were people patrolling, uh, carrying assault rifles. It was terrifying. And it reminded me so much of New York in 2001. And I'd long wanted to write a book about a terrorism novel. I'd also long wanted to write a book that was a follow-up to the expats that continued Kate Moore's story. But when I'd finished the expats, a long time ago, nearly a decade ago is when I, I ended the first draft of that book, I didn't know what should happen next to her. And I didn't want to try to foist a second-rate sequel onto first-rate characters and set up. And I thought, one day I will be inspired. Something will strike. And that was Paris in 2016. And I set to work immediately. And then I had a couple of really great experiences. And one was I went for a drink uh to Shakespeare and Company, which is owned a bookstore owned by somebody I know, Sylvia. And I spent the evening there talking to expats who came and went and seeing this whole wonderful life laid out. And 
talking to the proprietor about how deliberate they've always been at the shop about being welcoming to new people and kind to strangers. And it was such a deliberate idea of this is not just a way to be in life, but a way to run a business. And I was very impressed by how we take it for granted that the things we go about doing and the people we are are the people we ought to be and the things we ought to do without necessarily considering who should I be? What should I do? What should I write? And I sat down and thought, what should I write? What should I write next? I was in the middle of a completely different book that I was writing, but it occurred to me that what I should write was this book, not that one. So I shoved that aside, and I will write that book again. I'm still very much enamored with that book. But at this moment in time, I really wanted to write about terrorism. I really wanted to write about Kate Moore, and I thought both of those things would be the best thing for my career at this moment. Are there going to be more books about Kate Moore? I don't know. I assume so. Um, I've I've been doing this now. This is my fourth book, and I've been at it about a decade. And I, 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 I think at this point in my life, know enough to not know what I'm going to do next. I had no idea I was ever going to live in Luxembourg. I had no idea we were going to move back. I really didn't know that I was going to end up writing thrillers for a living. And I don't know what I'm going to do next. I. I really enjoy writing about this character, and if I find another great plot for her, I definitely intend to pursue it, but I have to find that great plot first. I love, though, within the press materials, there's kind of like a little tease. It kind of comes at the end. Like, after all the action of the book, we get an email that includes a recipe of hers. (laughs) Yes, there's a recipe. I was a cookbook editor for a while, and it was a job that I really enjoyed. I've read and edited a lot of recipes. I've countless times begun a session of work by reading that somebody needs to chop the onion. And recipes are are a big part of my life. And I read them and I cook almost every night. And throughout the course of this book, Kate Moore um, is intending to have a dinner party on this night. And she, first thing in the morning, what she's doing is getting the last minute things required for her dinner party for the cocoa van that she cooked the night before and is ready to reheat when her guests arrive. And that dinner party never comes about because of this horrific day that happens in Paris and this terrorist event and her involvement in it. Um, But nevertheless, eventually she, in material that's only in my imagination, she does have this dinner party with those guests who were canceled on at the last minute. And they love the cocoa van so much that one of them asks for the recipe, which I then went ahead and provided. And the recipe is based largely on a recipe I edited maybe 20 years ago for one of the favorite books I've ever published, the Balthazar Cookbook uh, from the Brasserie in Soho. And it's a, a the book I love and the recipe I love. And I've never met anybody who doesn't love Coco Van. I, I love that little detail. Thank you. And I can't wait to try the recipe out myself. <laughs> The new book we've been talking about is The Paris Diversion. Chris Pavoni, thanks for coming in and talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. That's this week's show. If you have questions, comments, concerns, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at WCBS880Books. We're always happy to hear from you. Next time around, we tackle reality shows, weight loss, and female body image with author Randy Susan Myers. Now go get lost in a book. I'm Lisa Czernkiewicz.